So this evening, I would like to look at another of the Eightfold Path, appropriate effort. And what I found interesting about appropriate effort is that it's really, in a way, uh, what I would call a practical application of the awareness. Because it's, uh, of course, it's the Eightfold Path before mindfulness, before concentration. But I find interesting that one of the main ingredients in order to be able to cultivate this appropriate effort is actually awareness. And there the Buddha is talking about awareness of conditions. And basically he's saying, you know, look at conditions. You are not stuck. You are not fixed. And look at condition and see if, in a way, you can work with conditions so to transform before the condition or after the condition has a right reason. And that's what I find interesting that we, he, he kind of tell us, look, you could even, in a way, work in advance, not just work when the conditions are there. So, Generally, appropriate effort is uh, divided in four parts. And the first one is let go of negative states once they have a reason. I mean, there is a much more kind of traditional way of putting it, but it's kind of a little long, and generally it refers to wholesome. But I prefer to use wholesome and wholesome to use maybe positive, negative. It will be a little more less cumbersome especially with my French accent. So the first one, let go of negative states once they have a reason. So that's the first effort. The second one is prevent negative states that have not yet a reason to arise. Third, sustain positive states once they have a reason. Force enable positive state that have not yet a reason to arise. So basically, there is, you know, it's different kind of effort each time. The first effort is actually nearly like a non-effort. It's kind of the effort of letting go. And so often we hear this word, let go. And I think we have to be careful that it doesn't just mean like, you know, you have a bad thought, or you have this and that, and you just say, let go, let go. <laughs> you know, because this does not work. You must have experienced this, and you tried, you know, come on, let go, let go, and it doesn't work. So I think we have to understand a little what it means. And I think in a way this letting go, the first thing you have to notice is that they're there. Because you see, often we are so caught in the negative state that in a way we cannot see anything else and we're nearly blind to it. This is it. This is kind of like what, is, what should be there nearly. So we can't even think of doing something else. So to me, awareness actually can help us to what I call the three stages 
the first three stages. The first stage is that we do a bit of meditation, we cultivate a bit of awareness, and we go through a negative cycle, and then at the end of it, when it's finished, we think, ah, that was a negative cycle. This was painful. Maybe it was not such a good idea. And I think this is already something, to see that, ah, I was caught. I was caught in one of these negative patterns. But not in a judging way. I am such a terrible person. I'll never amount to anything. But more, ah, yes, I did this. I was caught there. And in a way, you need to do this a few times to really know, ah, yeah, I have a tendency to do this in certain conditions. Then you have the second stage, and this is when you've done a little more meditation. And then you're caught in the middle. Right in the middle, you are jealous, angry, whatever it is. And it's so frustrating because you're so aware of it and it doesn't seem to make a difference. And so you think, well, if I was not aware of it, it could be better. At least I would not be aware of it. And then you often feel my meditation is not working. Because we feel quite powerless in that moment of really seeing, hey, I am so angry or so jealous or whatever it is. But personally, I think it's already a little letting go. There will be a little letting go in the same way that just seeing afterward is also a little helping with the letting go. Because when you sit in the middle, it will, in a way, de-intensify it. And so although it's still there, generally it will not last so long and it will not be so intense, which I think is a bit of letting go, a bit of dissolving. Then you have the third stage. And the third stage is we start to be more aware of not just internally but also externally and we start to see, I am not always caught in a negative cycle. Generally, you have the trigger, you have the contributing factor. And so you start to know, ah, the condition, external conditions are ripe for me to go down that cycle. And I remember when I was um, just at the beginning of my marriage, our marriage with Stephen, when he was going away for a week, I would get after three days in such a funk, really a funk, and then I would, it would phone me and I would be really in a bad mood. So it was not very helpful. <laughs> and it happened once, it happened twice, and I thought, what goes on? External factor, it goes away. First two days, I am fine. And then the third day, I get into this weird mood. And so then I started to look, to be aware. First day fine, second day fine. And the third day I was kind of looking, what goes on? And then I saw it was a thought, just one sentence. And if that sentence appeared in my mind, I was gone. I was gone in this very dark place. And so then after that, when he went away on the third day, I would see the sentence, and then I would do something else. So it was kind of what I would call creative 
distraction letting go. So I would go and read a book, talk to somebody, go for a walk. So then the, the sentence could not, in a way, take over the space. The space would be more kind of uh, diluted. And what was interesting is that I only had to do it twice for actually the sentence to lose its power, even with the condition so much so that now I cannot remember that sentence <laughs> whatsoever. And what this showed me is that actually our negative cycle are not as powerful as we think they are. And that actually, over time, we can creatively engage. So the letting go is not a repression, but the letting go is kind of like kind of an a understanding, creatively engaging with the conditions. Then you have the prevent. So prevent, another effort, prevent negative state that have not yet arisen to arise. And that, I think, is kind of once we really know the trigger, we know the cycle, we know the conditions, we know the contributing factors, then we can act more creatively so that in a way, we won't have that same response to the condition. I have a tendency to, uh, to be a little towards the angry kind of type, fiery, kind of uh, energetic. And so one thing I started to notice a few years back, suddenly I would find myself trying, becoming irritable, irritated. Then because I felt irritated, I looked for somebody to be irritated with. And Stephen being the closest generally, I would go to be irritated by Stephen. And Stephen would say, but I have not done anything. And so I started to look. Where does this feeling of irritation comes from? Where when does it arise? And then I started to see that it arose when I was tired. When I was tired, very little energy, suddenly there would be this kind of like kind of irritation. So then after that, when I saw tiredness arise, I went to lie down for half an hour. And then I was much nicer to be with. So it was that I just had to see what are the conditions. And then can I cultivate other conditions? Can I creatively engage with these conditions? Then you have the third one, is to sustain. Sustain positive states once they have arisen. And I think, in a way, the first thing that we have to do in order to sustain is actually to be aware of it. I think it's to me, part of a meditation retreat is being aware that I'm fine. I am peaceful. I am calm. I am clear. So that to see that, oh yeah, right now, I am in a positive state of being, of mind, of whatever it is. Because in a way, we are so slanted, in a way, because 
we like them less, much less, that we generally are kind of, it's kind of like we have a radar, we kind of seems to have this radar, which is ready to kind of see any of the negative state and to see, to feel the unpleasant state. But we think that pleasant state are normal. So our radar doesn't work that way there. We're kind of more prepared for what is dangerous so that we'll react. And I think we have to reorganize a little, realign the radar so we're also as aware of positive state as of negative state. And then that also will balance the idea, I always have negative state. You will know, but sometimes I am fine, calm, peaceful. Sometimes I am not, because we can't always be. This is impermanent. So in a way, I think this sustaining is actually first being aware. And what is interesting is just being aware of the state, actually sustain it. So, for example, as I was describing yesterday, when we might experience a quiet and clear state, just to be aware of it, not to grasp at it, but just to be aware of it and to hold it very gently, like a mother would hold a child. If you hold it too tight, it cries, to loose, it falls. But if you just hold gently that quiet and clear state, it will continue. And I think this is the same in a way for our good quality. That if we are aware of our good quality, actually we will have more confidence in them, we will more develop them, cultivate them, and then they will sustain themselves. For example, writing. I write books, I have uh, quite a few books written, but when I was at school, I had terrible mark in composition. I really had very bad marks in composition. I would have never thought I would become a writer. But I was in Korea. I translated the teaching of Master Kuzan. And somebody said, why don't you write a book? Stephen is good English. You could write the book together. And I thought, why not? And it worked. And then I came back to, the, to England and then somebody said, oh, you know about Buddhism, I know about ecology, let's do a book together about Buddhism and ecology. And I thought, why not? And to me what was interesting was that in the doing of it, it was so creative that in a way it was just, that's the thing about the sustaining, it's not just kind of holding onto something, but it actually by sustaining, you have these creative things which happen. And so just writing actually helps me to learn, to really think, to kind of discover things. To It's wonderful. I really enjoy it. And that's why I kind of have written different books now. And now I'm not afraid about composition at all. <laughs> so it's just to see the sustaining is not holding. But it's by being aware of something actually giving it more possibility to be cultivated, to be developed. Then you have the fourth one, which is to enable, to enable positive states that have not yet arisen to arise. And personally, I think that's what you do during this retreat. 
Personally, I think you are cultivating that. You are cultivating what I would call the tools of awareness. Being aware of the breath, being aware of the body, etc. That each of these is a tool that then you can cultivate in your daily life so that it will be more likely that a positive, a positive state can arise. For example, with breath. If we cultivate, the, if we do the breath most of the time, it can help us to be more calm. And nowadays it is used in some of the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for depression, etc. For example, they have this method, the short breath, three-minute breath. They stop, ask, what is going on here? Then they breathe, then they're aware of the body. And just that really helps not to kind of proliferate or exaggerate. It kind of, kind of makes a break in it. And then another state can happen. So we can remember that tool of awareness. Another tool is the body. As I said, kind of the body grounds us. When we're really lost in rumination and whatever it is, and we're really lost, then you think, okay, back to the body, back to the feet, back to the, the feeling, the contact of the air on the face. And I think that kind of brings us back to a more big vision. And then we can, in a way, encounter things in a more spacious way and more grounded way. Then you have the sounds. I think to listen to sounds really can open up to the music of life in a different way. To have less this kind of like, this kind of picky thing. I don't like this. I don't want this. Because it's true that we can be quite sensitive to sounds. But actually, if you do the listening meditation, you start to have a different relationship to sound. Isn't to see that they're going to attack me. You kind of just see them as arising and passing away. Once I was uh, teaching a retreat in London with London Insight, and it was sunny for once. In England, in London, it was sunny, a beautiful day. We were in Kid, uh, uh, King Alfred School in Golders Green. And so we start, you know, 10 o'clock, we start to meditate, and the neighbor start his mowing machine. <laughs> but not only that, at the same time, he was listening really loudly to the rolling stone. <laughs> Satisfaction! <laughs> and we were sitting there, trying to meditate. And what was interesting is that at the end of the day, some people say how much it had bothered them, and some how much it was just part of what was arising and passing away. And that actually it was okay. And it was very interesting to see what actually helped them to have what I would call a more spacious state, or what kind of, kind of closed them off. You know, I came to meditate, not to hear the mower and the rolling stone or whatever it was. <laughs> then you have feeling. I think to be aware of feelings can start to help us to be more creatively engaged with our feeling tone, but also our emotional sensation. So they kind of like more a gradation of seeing, do I need to really be concerned about this feeling or can I just let it pass? 
or do I really need to do something about this? I think it can help us to have more wisdom and so we can have less caught, less overwhelmed by our feeling and we can have more, again, that creative engagement with them. And then there is a question. I think the question time to time can be helpful because sometimes we're so kind of fixed and kind of stuck. And then suddenly you think of asking, what is this? And then it just opens. It just, just like a puff of smoke. It doesn't become so, we're less entangled. To me, the question is about helping us to develop flexibility so that we're less stuck and we become more flexible and we can start to see more different choices. And then you have loving kindness. And today you are doing loving kindness. And to me, this is also a very useful practice to consider when we are in our daily life. The Buddha recommended as an antidote to fear. Because he had this monk who were in the forest by themselves. And they got very frightened because they saw something, somebody was going to get them. And they said to the Buddha, what can we do? We can't meditate. We're so afraid. And he said, just do loving kindness meditation. And then that will help you to feel that things are more benign. They are not there to get you. And recently a young woman who does loving kindness meditation as a practice at home was saying that it really helped her in terms of working with our boss. Suddenly she gets the phone call, you must go and meet the boss. And so she said, ah, the boss, and he was kind of a little known to be agitated and shouting, and she was a little afraid of him. And then she kind of started to go, ah. And then she said, okay, let's do loving kindness meditation for 10 minutes. So she did that. And then it really quieted her heart. So that by the time she got there, she could really see him as a human being. That I'm just going to meet this human being and let's see how he's going to be in that moment. So she did not bring any fear with her. And the encounter was much easier, much easier. So I think in a way to see how different tools of awareness can help us. Also with loving kindness, I think it can help us to cultivate, to see that what we're trying, what I was saying, it's not a prayer at a distance, but it's a meditation who puts us in a way in a certain direction of kindness and generosity. I mean, see the difference. If you're sitting and you're thinking, may you be unhappy, may you suffer forever. I mean, this is going to kind of make you feel something different. <laughs> and if you think, may you be happy, may you be free from suffering. I mean, it puts your mind in a different direction. I think it's very important. It's not the fact that, you know, you are trying to crank up a kind of a loving feeling that you're going to love everybody to the same degree all the time. That's not the idea. But that it's going to put your mind in a kind direction. And through that, it's going to help to diminish the holding, the protecting, the fear. And also, in a way, for me, it's really to open the heart, to expand the awareness and to look 
beyond the fixed ideas we have of people. Look, when you go to meet somebody, generally when you meet the person, often you have an image of how they were the last time you meet them. So sometimes you remember they were ecstatically happy, or sometimes you remember they were very unhappy, or they were boring, or they were this, that. And often you go with that image, and you go to meet the person. And so you kind of go to meet that boring person, to meet that happy person, or to meet that sad person. So anyway, you kind of nearly prejudge what's going to happen. When actually with the loving kindness, you're trying to, okay, how is a person going to be today? How am I today in that encounter with that person? And in that way to reach to something a little more basic, what I would call life and humanity. And so by cultivating that direction, that intention of kindness, then actually I think it has a little effect on resentment, on the, the fact that often in spiritual circle, because angry, anger is generally a, a, a kind of a, a bad thing, you know, anger is bad, you know. So then, you know, introverted people have a better chance to look like good Buddhists because, you know, they're not angry, so they kind of represent more the way you should be. But the fact that you don't look angry, don't act angry, doesn't mean you're not resentful. I think often that's what happens. You know, you don't look it, but inside, mm, you're kind of resentful. So in a way, personally, I think sometimes it's nearly better to be angry because then you can really see what goes on because resentment is generally a little underneath. Then it will come back later, kind of attack in strange way. So in a way, it's to kind of look that I think often the loving kindness softens a little the resentment, the criticism to self or to other, so that we can look <laughs> at ourselves and the person in a more spacious way. It doesn't mean that we think they are fantastic all the time. Again, we have to be careful. Loving kindness is not saying, you know, everybody is great. I love everybody. But he said that I can see the humanity of the person. I can wish well to that person, but it doesn't mean I condone the action of the person. I mean, not far from us, we have the jail. And actually, Stephen, for 10 years, he was a Buddhist chaplain. And so he met kind of, you know, tough guys there. And, uh, but he had kind of a loving kindness for them. He recognized their humanity. But, of course, he did not condone their action. And so sometimes they kind of try to reflect on how they came to their action. So in that way, one could say that I think personally that meditation is really, in a way, an openness to help us to open the heart and to have more awareness of others. And I think that's why in the Satipatthana Sutta, you have often the instruction to be aware internally and externally. And to me, this is an important function of the creative awareness, that by losing, the dissolving, loosening, the self-centeredness, then we can start to 
be more aware of others. And it reminds me a little of a book uh, that I read which really kind of moved me greatly. And this is about a man who was a schizophrenic. And for a very young age, 16, he started to hear voices. And the title of the book is When the Voices Stop. And so he, his, his story, life story was really, really sad because he kept getting into trouble and things like that. But finally, when he was about 50-something, uh, they started to have drugs to help with schizophrenia, and so he started to take the drugs. And at the beginning, they did not do anything. So he did not think anything of it. He just kept on taking them just in case. Who knows? And suddenly, one day, he thought something was different. And he was so frightened, actually, he had to kind of hide in his bathroom for a little while. And then he noticed the voices were not there anymore. And what was interesting is that as soon as the voices stopped, then first thing, he started to see his neighbor. He started to be able to relate with the neighbor, to see her as a human being. And I wonder if it's not the same with us in terms of self-centeredness, that we have this self-centered voice, which actually screen seeing the other. And then with the meditation, the, that self-centered kind of a veil starts to go down. And then we know it have the opportunity to discover others, to see them more through that. And in a way, until we can really aware of the other, we can really be see they are there and can really open to the other. And I think that's why one important quality to cultivate is love. And I know often in a spiritual circle, one do not talk, doesn't talk about love. And often one hear about, one hear, talks about detachment. And so when you think about detachment, generally you think, ooh, I must not love everybody because I'm going to be attached. But personally, I think love is an essential quality because it's a quality which enables us to open to the other, to care for the other, to appreciate the other. And I feel... The meditation can help us to develop creative, wise love. And so it will be a love which will be in a way nurtured by non-grasping. And I think actually you can love better if it is a non-grasping love. Because when you love somebody, look, what is it that you love? Is it you love the feeling that they generate within you? Often that's what we love, not so much the person, but as a feel, the pleasant feeling they generate within ourselves. And then you have a tendency to stick to the person so you can feel that feeling all the time. <laughs> or do we love the person because they in a way help us to exist? So that we exist in the love of others. But then if they're not there, we don't exist. So that's a little problematic. 
but could love be actually more the opening to the other, really the appreciation of the other, appreciating the fact that exist and that we can in a way share and participate in the same life. And I would say the, the texture, the texture of love, I would say is warmth. And notice when you like something, for example, I like snow, and it rarely snow in France, in the south of France. When there is snow, I think, wow, and I kind of feel like I'm floating, and I'm light, and I'm kind of warm. Or when I see my niece, I love her dearly, and again, I feel warm, I feel light. And so I think it's important to see that, that love has that quality to make us feel warm, to make us feel light. Then, what about self-love? You see, I think we have a difficulty. Is that a lot of the time, we don't like ourselves. But the thing is that we are stuck with ourselves. So we are stuck with this person we don't like, which then can become a little painful because we can't get rid of it. You know, I mean, you can hope through meditation, maybe I can become somebody else and then I'll get better on with myself. I'm not sure about that. But imagine, imagine if you loved yourself. Well, all the time, you could be warm and light. You would not have need of anybody else. And other people would just add to that warmth and light. And so, in a way, to see that also the love I'm talking about cannot be totally reduced to liking. Because I think in liking, there must I, I like, I don't like. And that's why I put the emphasis on care. Because I, I know I lived in community for many years. And I can assure you, I know often people have an idealistic notion of community, especially Buddhist meditative community. Everybody is going to love each other. It is not so. <laughs> they might love each other, but they might not like each other. This is, I think, to me, that's what I discovered. Living in community that I did not have to like somebody to love them, to care for them, to appreciate their humanity, even if I did not agree with them. Or we saw the world in such a different way, and you thought, how can they think that? I would never, ever think it. Well, they don't think it because they don't have your brain. They have their own. I think this is a, a big thing we have to see. And so, in a way, I think what is also interesting to look at in terms of love, like in living in a community or living with a partner, is that often we equate love with a feeling, often equate love with a falling in love feeling. And that feeling is generally very intense and it has the propensity to lead us to a slight exaggeration of the attributes of the person. <laughs> so that during the falling in love period, generally there is this kind of glow around the person. You know, and you kind of warm, you kind of get warm. I, 
It's like a fire and the glow of that. But the problem is that at some point, this too is impermanent. So at some point, the falling in love goes down. So the glow seems to retreat. (laughs) And then it becomes a little tricky. But what is tricky is not the feeling. The love is there. You like the person, you appreciate them, you're attracted to them, or whatever it is. But the problem is actually the habits cohabiting. Is that two people living together generally come with different habits. And generally they think their habits are better than the other. (laughs) So then one starts to think If he or she loves me enough, they would change their habits. (laughs) But if both of you think the same way, you've got a stalemate. So I think it's very important to see in love, what is it we're looking at? That it be with children, with partner, with family, with friends, or anybody to see that it's easy to love as long as the person is not difficult. (laughs) But then if they become difficult, we start thinking, well, do I want to love them or not? You know? And so often we have this kind of conditional love. I love you, but... And to me, this is in a way the gift of love. That if we love someone, we really accept the person. And then from that acceptance, you can really build trust. And then from that trust, you can really talk about what is difficult, because of course there will be difficulty. But then you can look at them in a different way. Instead of, I'll stop loving you if you don't stop that, it's more, okay, when we do this, this is hurtful. How can we possibly together do something different or look at it differently or kind of find a way to work together? And I'll just finish with uh, a little story. I was in the garden, and it was very hot. And I thought, it is hot. It would be nice to have a glass of water. It would be nice if Stephen brought me a glass of water. (laughs) It would be nice... If Stephen loved me, he would bring me a glass of water. And then Stephen came without glass of water. <laughs> so I told him about these little things. And we laughed together. And then now he always brings me a glass of water. <laughs> so I think in a way we have to also be careful of what I would call our romantic image of love that... If somebody loves us or if we love somebody, we'll have that kind of like, you know, mind-to-mind knowing. I'm not sure one need, even it would be a good thing to have. But to, to be aware, the person can only know his or her own brain as you can know only yours. And I think it's the same to be careful also with children. Because sometimes children, they suddenly to their mother or father, they will say, I hate you. And if you grasp at that, you think they will hate me forever. 
when actually it's just in that moment they have an unpleasant feeling or they want something you're not letting them do. And that's only in that moment. And then five minutes later, they love you, come and kiss you. So I think we have to kind of, with this love, we have to be careful. Again, how can we develop creative, wise love to all life around us, to ourselves, to others? But again, not in an idealistic or romantic manner, but more as a mean of connecting, as a mean of appreciating, as a mean of sustaining, so that in a way we can develop together these wholesome states. So that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Yes. Sure, sure. Uh, for some people, they find meta too mechanical. They find it weird. They find it weird. But personally, I think it can just be at the level that some people have problem with the breath, some with the sound, some have problem with meta. That's why I would not recommend it for everybody. The second thing we have to be very careful <coughs> is that sometimes it is taught as a way to produce a certain feeling. And then it's kind of nearly like producing something that is not there. So it's kind of like nearly forcing yourself. And so you're kind of doing meta, may, may you be happy, may you, and then nothing happened, nothing happened. And you think, you know, I'm really not good at this. You know, I, or, or you start to think I am an unloving person. Personally, I think it's a little how you present it. Also, sometimes people present it with these huge sentences. And then you have to sit there, try to remember this huge sentence, especially if it's not your own language. And you think, how can I say this in German? And how can I remember all these words? And you kind of, you know. So personally, that's why I make it very simple. And why the emphasis I put is on really looking, reaching out to the humanity. So I think, again, it depends how you present it. But also I think some people... It really works for them, and some it really doesn't work. Just like the question also doesn't work for everybody. Yes? I am not sure if I said it in that way, so I can't remember how it would have worked. But personally, I think, you know, we have to see different things. Generally, when I talk about meditation, I talk about um, concentration and experiential inquiry, what is also called sometimes insight. And that, in terms of the Vipassana meditation, is to be aware of the impermanence, to be aware of the unsatisfactoriness, to be aware of the conditionality or no self. Personally, I think the easiest way to see it is impermanence. So if you watch the breath, the sensation, the sound, the feeling, I think generally, if you can, 
not only to focus on that, but also to be aware of the impermanence. That is also what I would call inside experiential inquiry. In terms of the question, this is different. You see, if uh, what is this seems to work for you, then I would say, do it. But if asking the question then sends you into kind of, you know, kind of a digression, proliferation, then I would not do it. So sometimes people might like to ask another question. Somebody recently was telling me she thought it was easier for her to just say, what? Or to say something else. I can't remember exactly. So sometimes the question can have different form. But I was talking just about that questioning practice. That if the questioning doesn't work for you, then I would say don't do it. And then you do the experiential inquiry working with impermanence. So that it's just two different practices. If you have, um, I would not say, you know, as you sit in medita meditation, never think or reflect. I think sometimes one can do what I call meditative creative thinking. Or sometimes can, one can be sitting in meditation and then an insight can develop. In starter, you kind of look at things in a different way. And often it might start by a questioning, looking at a sensation or looking at a sound and kind of going inside it. And I think with an insight, with kind of this looking deeply in that way, I think it's important to, to, to do it, to continue with it until you feel that it stops being an insight and it becomes a memory. It becomes, oh, I must remember that. And then you kind of repeat it and it doesn't go anywhere. So I think, again, it depends what is going on. Okay, that, that generally I, I mentioned it those other day, and I refer to that at meditative creative thinking. But that I would not do that all the time in meditation, but if there was something uh, special in my life, a special theme, a special um, kind of thing I had to decide, then I would say, yeah, once a day to meditate on that. But just on that, but to try to look at it in a different way. So yeah, I would say it has its place, but I would not just do that all the time, like any anything else. Yes. When you talked about um, appropriate effort, it reminded me of what Stephen said about going against the stream um, in a way by not um, by not buying into the negativity. For example, which would be going with the stream. All this uh, the stream for me is the stream of karma of, of conditions. You can try. You see, I, I am personally, I think there is place for both. 
Personally, what I found interesting in the four great efforts is that it's kind of really kind of trying to be aware of condition and play with condition. So it's really not just accepting everything. And I find that interesting because it's kind of like more, personally, I find creative. And I think that's a way kind of like, uh, like an artist doesn't just sit there, well, who cares? You know, you just don't sit in meditation, who cares? I just wait here. I don't need to do anything. I don't see it that way. I see that it's kind of actually knowing that it be positive or negative. Knowing, first, yes, you have acceptance. You have acceptance. Because you have to accept before you can do anything to anything. And acceptance comes from awareness. You're aware of, ah, this is going on. And sometimes you can't do anything about it. And so you just be with it. You just know it. And through that knowledge, you don't, I think the thing you don't do is to, you don't amplify it. You don't exaggerate it. But personally, I think it depends on the level. If you have a light condition, an habitual condition, yeah, you can do what you say. Acceptance, which can possibly lead to understanding. But personally, I think often acceptance actually is what I would call sweeping under the carpet. So you don't really see what is really going on. You think, oh yes, oh yes, that's what's going on. And you don't really engage with what I would call the whole emotional, physical, mental, what's going on. And so personally, I'm not saying to say, I must not have negative state. Because yes, of course, it could look like we're kind of going for no negative state ever and only positive state. It's true. The, the framework of the four great effort can give this impression. But personally, I think of it more as a working model, kind of seeing, you know, there is different way to look at things. There is different aspect. That's what I like about the Buddha. He always has different kind of, you know, three or four things you kind of kind of try to work with and kind of and I find, I like that because I think it's more creative. So personally I think sometimes we have to accept because we can't do nothing about it. And then sometimes we can transform it. And I think it can lead to less harm, to less pain. So I think Again, it's for you to see. It's for you to see. Personally, I think why I like the four great effort is because I recognized that's what happened. It doesn't mean that I never get angry and that I'm always in pleasant state, but that it helps me to kind of creatively engage. And I think the danger sometime in, in a spiritual circle with this kind of, you know, just kind of equanimity, you just have equanimity. That often you really don't address some of, I would say, something which is very knotted. You know, and you kind of look very, on the surface, relatively enlightened. And then in certain conditions, you're not enlightened whatsoever. <laughs> and you might not see it. That's a problem. You might not see it. Other people might see it, but you don't see it. That's, that's the problem I have with just going with acceptance just being with and not doing anything. Personally, uh, I am more for a dynamic model, but that's more possibly correspond also to my personality and maybe an, 
accepting model might work more for some other personality. So I must not, you know, I just say this is the way I find it work for me. It might not necessarily work for everybody. But I, see, I don't see it as, I know people sometimes see it as engineering. I don't see it as engineering. To me, I really see it as dissolving the power of the habit to a certain extent, because some really won't go, but at least they will diminish, and really trying to bring the habit back to the creative function. So then you have kind of a, uh, an individual which is kind of more creative than not by using creatively all the function is has. I see anger as having a function. I see sadness as having a function. It's not, so it's not that you're not angry, you're not sad, but not to such an extent that, again, you have the proliferation and the exaggeration, but that they have their function, that when you're sad, you know it. But the sadness does not cover everything. The anger does not color everything. But this is a big subject. Mm. So it's kind of swimming in the middle by having, having the freedom to play a little bit, by staying in between the two extremes of stoicism and, <coughs> and talking about it over the other Yes, yeah, exactly. That's the way I would see it, really, really. That's the way I would see it. Good. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.